0: and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah, and if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house." because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the Son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servants said to him, Why is this, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. David said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her. And she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Now Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah. Moreover, I have taken the city of waters. Now then gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called by my name. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabah and fought against it and took it. He took the crown of their king from his head. The weight of it was a talent of gold, and in it was a precious stone, and it was placed on David's head. And he brought out all the spoil of the city, a very great amount, and he brought out the people who were in it and set them to labor with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them toil at the brick kilns. And thus David did to all the cities of the Ammonites. Then David and all of the people returned to Jerusalem. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray now and ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of His Word. Let's pray. Father, we've heard already today and we have sung that You are a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. We know these are not Merely things that You do, this is who You are. By nature, God, You are merciful and gracious. And so, as we come to You now and ask You to help us to understand the truth of the Scriptures and to give us life and encouragement and strength from the Bible, as we ask You to do those things, God, we're asking You to work in accords with Your nature. To do, Father, who You are. Please give us mercy today. And please give us grace as we consider Your Word here in 2 Samuel 12. Father, please open our eyes to behold wonderful things from Your Word. Please give me grace, God, to speak things that are faithful to the Scriptures. We do not live, God, by bread alone. We live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Would You help us today? Would You help me today to be faithful to those words? And and would You give us discernment, God, as Your people, that we might grow in the truth and be encouraged. We ask these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's probably fair to say that no one likes being caught in their sin. It's never a pleasant experience to have your wrongs exposed. Even as I say that, some of us surely have memories flooding our minds of moments when precisely that happened. When we were caught in our sin. Maybe it was a lie that unraveled to reveal what you had really done. Maybe it was a bitter word spoken in a hushed whisper that somehow made its way back to the one person you never intended to hear it. Maybe it was a receipt or an internet log that revealed some dark desire. Maybe it was an angry outburst that finally displayed a heart out of control. We all have those kinds of moments, don't we? I know I do. And those memories remind us that deep down inside, we would much prefer to keep our failures hidden, right? We would much prefer to keep our failures hidden. It feels safe to cover things up because it perpetuates this myth that we can deal with sin by hiding it. No one likes being caught in their sin, and therefore, we would prefer to hide. And that's why we need God's Word this morning from 2 Samuel 12. This chapter reminds us that having our sin exposed is actually a display of God's mercy. Having our sin exposed is actually a display Of God's mercy. It is a severe but merciful act of God when He strips away our feeble attempts to hide and brings into the light who we are and what we have done. Those moments are painful, but they are merciful as well. They're merciful because without that exposure, there can be no repentance and therefore no restoration. You see, that's why our tendency to hide is so dangerous. Because in trying to hide, the only thing we succeed in covering up is the pathway to forgiveness. Friends, this is the message of 2 Samuel 12. As you can see there in your Bibles, this chapter is Act 2 of David's sin with Bathsheba. Act 1 was chapter 11. Which recounted the awful details of what David had done adultery, deception, murder. And for a time, it appeared David would succeed in covering it all up. But the last line of chapter 11 proved otherwise. Look again how the previous chapter ended. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So God saw behind the facade, and God knew. Chapter 12 then is Act 2 of the drama. And in this passage, we witness God's severe mercy as He confronts King David. But here's the key, friends. Here's the main takeaway of the chapter. God confronts David not in order to shame him or destroy him or humiliate him. God confronts David in order to save him in order to lead David once more to repentance and to faith. Friends, I pray that's what we will take away from our time this morning. I pray that what God was doing in David's life will be what He does in our lives. I pray that God would teach us the truth about our tendency to hide. That it's never as safe as it seems. And even more than that, I pray God would teach us to understand that His mercy, even when it is severe, even when it exposes us, His mercy is always an evidence of His goodness and His grace. Always. As we look now to the details of the chapter, the key for interpreting this passage is found in the very first phrase. Look there with me. The very first phrase. And the Lord sent In chapter 11, David dominated the action. Five times, in fact, we read of David sending someone. But as we enter chapter 12, the action action shifts. And it's the Lord who sends. It's the same verb. Chapter 11 is all David sending. Chapter 12 begins, the Lord sends. God now dominates the action. And that proves to be the key for understanding the text. 2 Samuel 12 is all about God working to pursue His wayward son. This chapter gives us five ways God's mercy is working in the life of King David. The first way comes in verses 1-6 to as we see mercy that pursues. Mercy that pursues. Again, we look at the opening verse, which really is so important for the chapter. Notice what it says. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. You'll remember that Nathan is a prophet, and prophets, you'll recall, had one job, to speak God's Word. And that's Nathan's task here in this chapter. The Lord sends his prophet with the mission of speaking God's Word to the wayward king. So here we are, only one sentence in, and already we see God's mercy at work. Do you see what God is doing, friends? God could have sent David punishment. He could have sent David a plague, a lightning bolt from heaven. He could have sent David some physical manifestation of his wrath. David is guilty, remember. But what does God do? He sends David His Word. His life-giving Word heart-changing, sin-exposing, grace-imparting word. I know it's only one sentence, but don't overlook it friends. It's a it's one sentence that's full of mercy. God doesn't send wrath. He sends his word. And that mercy continues as Nathan delivers a perfectly crafted message in verses 2 to 4. This is a better sermon than anything I will ever preach in verses 2 through 4. Nathan comes with a brilliant strategy. Remember, at this point, David is utterly blinded by his sin. David has no inklings of remorse, at least not that the text reports. So if Nathan shows up and starts berating David with accusations, what's likely to happen? Well, nothing good. As you might imagine, David's already killed Uriah. Why would he hesitate to kill Nathan? Nothing good's going to happen if Nathan shows up guns blazing. But mercifully, that's not the strategy God employs. Instead, the Lord has Nathan deliver a, master, a masterful parable that lowers David's defenses and softens David's heart all without David even recognizing what is happening. The parable is not hard to follow. There are two men. One rich and one poor. The rich man has many flocks. The poor man has one little lamb. One day, a traveler shows up to the rich man's house, but instead of taking from his many flocks, the rich man takes his neighbor's one lamb, he slaughters it, and he serves it to his guest. You see, it's not a hard parable to follow. It draws you in, actually, and you quickly understand, this is not about stealing a lamb. This is about the abuse of power by the strong towards the weak. This is about failing to love your neighbor as yourself. This is about David, the rich king. Taking from Uriah his servant. In fact, did you catch that purposeful echo in verse 4? Look again at verse 4. What did the rich man do? He took his neighbor's lamb. What did chapter 11 say David did? He took Uriah's wife for himself. You see, Nathan has masterfully shown David the reality of his sin. This is God's mercy, friends. He pursues us with his word. And his word always comes with the perfect balance of wisdom and truth that is able to pierce sin's blindness. And that's precisely what happens in verses 5 to 6. For all of his blindness, David sees enough to issue the right verdict. Just as the law of Moses required, David says the man should repay the lamb fourfold. That's what Exodus 22 said to do. Pay the lamb back fourfold. But notice also in verse five where David says the rich man deserves to die. Now, stealing was not a capital crime under the law of Moses, but David senses that this injustice goes beyond stealing. And David is right. I mean, suddenly it seems David's cold heart is stirring and his spiritual sensitivity is being awakened once more. But do you see what else this means? It means David has indicted himself. And notice how it happened. In a way David did not even suspect. In a way that lowered David's defenses, penetrated David's blindness, and softened David's heart. Now it's true that David has not yet repented of his sin, but even so, friends, please don't miss how mercy is already on the pursuit. Already on the pursuit. Through Nathan, God has skillfully, we could even say stealthily, taken the truth that David refused to see and he has brought it to bear on David's hard heart. That's mercy, friends. It's the mercy of God's Word. It softens the heart and it prepares us to hear the truth we've tried to ignore. Brothers and sisters, this is one of the ways our merciful God works. Oftentimes, God is using His Word today to prepare us for some work of grace that will only become apparent down the road. He's using His Word today for something He wants to do tomorrow or next week or next year. Through His Word, God is always up to something. And that something is always full of mercy. And therefore, we should never underestimate what God is doing today. At this moment, through His Word. That time spent each morning reading Scripture may not seem like much to you, but God is at work there. That evening with your community group gathered around the Bible may seem small to you, but God is working there through His Word. Sunday after Sunday of preaching may not seem significant. It doesn't always seem that significant to me, but God is working there through His Word, softening our hearts and preparing us for a work of grace that is yet to be revealed. I guess what I'm trying to say is that God keeps after us, friends. He keeps after us. Perhaps He's pursuing you today in some way. Perhaps He's after you today. And if so, Pray that you would see His mercy chasing after you in His word. That's the first way God is working mercy that pursues. The second work of mercy flows right out of the first. In verses 7 to 13, we see mercy that convicts. Mercy that convicts. Verse 7 is high drama, but you've got to put yourself in the moment to feel the force of what is said. Remember, David is boiling mad at this point. He is incensed. He's just ruled against this rich man, this greedy man, this violent, selfish, unloving man. And then Nathan points the finger at David and says, you are the man. You wonder if the proverbial light clicked on in David's conscience at this point. You wonder if this was the moment when the scales fell from David's eyes and he saw for the first time what he had done. You are the man, Nathan says. And mercifully, there is no longer any place for David to hide. What follows then is a declaration of God's justice that exposes what David tried to cover up. God brings everything into the light. It starts in verse 7 where God exposes the depth of David's sin. Prior to the sin with Bathsheba, David lacked nothing. God gave him position. He was the king of Israel. God gave him protection. He delivered him from Saul. And God gave him provision. He gave him everything that Saul had. Uh, Position, protection, provision. David lacked nothing. But how did he respond? Not with gratitude, but with rebellion. Notice verse 9. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in His sight? To despise God's Word is to treat it lightly. Like some optional set of instructions that you're free to follow or free to not follow. And that's what David has done. He's tossed God's Word to the side like it was some fortune cookie piece of wisdom. He's thrown it aside. He's treated it lightly. He's despised God's Word. But now there's no way for David to escape. What happened to Uriah? You killed him, David. What happened to Bathsheba? You took her, David. Everything David has tried to cover it up is now out in the open for everyone to see. God sees. And in his justice, God exposes the depth of David's sin. But the Lord's not finished. In verses 10 to 12, God also exposes the consequences of David's sin. Sin always has consequences, friend. Always. And we're reminded of that here with David. God will do to David what David has done to others. It's pretty simple. You see it there in the text. Verse 10, God struck, uh, David struck Uriah down with the sword. God will raise up the sword against David's house forever. Verse 11, David took another man's wife, therefore God will raise up someone to take David's wives. Those two verses, by the way, are the hinge of the entire book of 2 Samuel. The rest of the book is the description of how those two verses get played out over and over. The sword strikes David's house. Evil is raised up from David's own family. Now, as we look at that, you might be thinking to yourself, this all seems so harsh. I thought we were talking today about God being slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This all seems so harsh. Why would God do this? Well, notice verse 10 where God explains Himself. God gives the reason for these consequences. Verse 10, because you have despised Me. Now, just one verse earlier, the Lord said David had despised God's Word. But here, God says David has despised the Lord Himself. That connection is the key, friends. When we sin, we are not merely breaking commandments. We're defying God's character. Remember, God's commandments are an expression of God's own person. So when we sin, we're despising who God is as well as what He says. It's not merely breaking commandments. It's defying the living God. You see, that's what David forgot. He lost sight of God's character. And therefore, God justly exposes both the depth and the consequences of David's sin. So where's the mercy? I mean, Perhaps you're thinking that at this point. We've clearly seen God's justice, but you told us this passage was all about mercy. So where's the mercy? So far it sounds rather bleak. Well, notice what happens in verse 13. Specifically, the first line. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. There's the mercy, friends. That's the mercy. The depth of David's sin, the consequences of his sin, all of that now comes together and bears fruit in repentance. I know the words are few, but please don't overlook the magnitude David confesses his sin. Anytime a sinner confesses his sin, it's a miracle of grace. It is a miracle of mercy. David confesses his sin. And, and just, just think about There are no excuses. There are no caveats. There are no loopholes. He doesn't say, well, I did see her bathing on the roof, and then I am the king, and I was kind of tired. He doesn't say any of that. No excuses. He doesn't blame shift like Saul. He doesn't seek to minimize what he has done. With simplicity and sincerity, David offers an honest confession. It's a miracle of mercy. When any sinner confesses their sin, that's what David does. We're going to study David's confession more closely next week when we look at Psalm 51. But what I hope we see today is that conviction over sin is a good thing in the life of a believer. Conviction over sin is a good thing in the life of a believer. It's good when God breaks us down because it leads us to repentance. One of the many unfortunate trends in evangelicalism today is that we try to avoid anything that feels bad to us. If it doesn't feel good, I don't want it. Well, conviction doesn't feel good in the moment, but it's a good thing. Too often, I think we resist conviction because we, refuse it with, we confuse it with condemnation. We confuse conviction and condemnation. But those are very different realities, friends. Condemnation has no place in the life of a Christian. Condemnation is fundamentally hopeless. And it drives us from God in shame and in fear. But conviction is different. Conviction is fundamentally hopeful and draws us to God through repentance. Condemnation leads to death, conviction leads to life. Is conviction hard? Well, yes, for sure. We see that here with David. He had to be humbled first. He had to listen to verses 10 and 11 and 12 before he got to verse 13 and said, I have sinned. He had to be broken down first. So it's hard, yes, but at its core, conviction is fundamentally merciful. It is God's tool to work in us the wonderful gift of repentance. Is this how you think of conviction, friends? As God's mercy to you? That that prick of your conscience, that pang of the heart that says to you that you have sinned against God, do you view that as His mercy? Because that's what it is. That's why He brings our sin into the light. That's why He disciplines us for our sin. Not because He's angry, but because He wants us to live. If God didn't care about you, He would just let you keep going in blindness. But He brings it to light and He breaks us down so that we might live. He's a good Father who gives good gifts to His children. And one of His most precious gifts is this mercy that convicts us And leads us to repentance. One of the things that I pray for my sons each and every week is that God would give them a soft heart and a tender conscience. Pray it for myself. I pray it for you. It is a good gift of God to be convicted and broken over your sin. It's a merciful gift because it leads us to repentance. That's number two. The mercy that convicts. Number three goes right along with it. In fact, it completes this discussion of repentance. Verses 13 and 14. Mercy that pardons. Mercy that pardons. David has confessed his sin, so now what? Well, God is holy, and so therefore, David clearly deserves to die. If this were a court of law, it's an open and shut case. David has pled guilty. He's confessed to capital crimes. So all that's left is the execution. And yet, incredibly, that's not what happens. If verse 7 is one of the more dramatic verses in the Old Testament, then verse 13 has to be one of the more astounding. Look again at what it says, particularly the last part. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David... The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. The law demanded death, but God grants life. He puts away David's sin. That is, God removes it so that David is forgiven. Why does God do this? How can God do this? Well, the why is both simple and stunning. God does this by grace. There's there's no other explanation for why. In His grace, God gives David what He does not deserve. He gives David life. This is actually a really good illustration of what grace actually is. There was nothing David did to earn it. In fact, he had done all of the opposite things And there was nothing in David that prompted God to give it. Who started the chapter acting? God did. Not David. Grace. God was motivated simply and only by His own desire to be gracious. That's why David lives. Not because he should, but because God overflows with grace. But what about the how? How can God do this? I thought God was just. I mean, didn't we just talk about that? Didn't we just spend three verses talking about God's justice? But here it seems God dismisses sin with a wink and a nod. Is God just going to sweep David's sin under the rug of the universe? How can God do this? Well, to answer that, you've got to look ahead to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. When the Lord Jesus shed His blood on the cross, He did so to save His people from their sins. Jesus' blood covered every sin that every believer would ever commit. But along with that, Jesus' death also proved once and for all that God is just. That God never overlooks sin. Not in the past, Not in the present, not in the future. Romans chapter 3, God put Jesus forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It's the most important paragraph in the New Testament. And it explains how God can do this. So when God pardons David in 2 Samuel 12, He's not letting David off easy. He has one eye on David, and He has one eye on the Lord Jesus Christ. He sees David through the lens of the cross. In His sovereignty, God knows there is a day coming when a son of David would shed His blood to atone for sin. Even the sin of David himself. Even such heinous sins as adultery and murder. And because God in His infinite wisdom and sovereignty sees that bloody cross to come, He can now look on sinful David with grace and grant him forgiveness. He doesn't sweep anything under the rug. He sees David through the lens of the cross. Friends, do you see here the wonder of a gracious God? It is easy to grow accustomed to grace, isn't it? We sing how amazing grace is, but then we breeze on by and do something else. So what does God do? He mercifully gives us a picture like the one we have here. Doctrinal explanations are good, but sometimes it's better to see something in living color. In flesh and blood, as it were. And that's what we have here in 2 Samuel 12. Here we have not a thesis on grace, but a picture of grace. A picture that reveals afresh just how amazing grace is that a vile sinner who deserved only death would now live only by the grace of God. In fact, perhaps that's part of the reason why God recorded this moment in David's life in Holy Scripture, so that sinners like us would have a fresh glimpse of our own testimony. You see, if it bothers us that David is pardoned so freely, then it should also bother us that we are forgiven at all. We're no different than David. In fact, I would say you probably don't understand the gospel as you ought until you understand that you're no different than David. We've despised God and His Word. We've broken God's law. We deserve death. And yet we live, and we are forgiven. Why? Because amazingly, mercifully, God is gracious. But how? Our sin is so great. How? Because this pardon is not cheap or flimsy, but blood-bought and sealed with the resurrection of Christ. And in response, instead of asking ourselves, why does God let David off so easy? We should say, what a merciful God. What a merciful God who would show grace in pardoning a sinner like David, even a sinner like me. That's number three mercy that pardons. Even as we're discussing this pardon, however, I'm sure you notice there's still a terrible consequence to come in David's life. Verse 14 states it so starkly, David's child will die. David is forgiven, yet this consequence remains. Why, we ask. Why does the child die? Well, the text does not tell us why God chose to do this. And that's on purpose, I believe. Instead of speculating about God's reasons, we're meant to notice David's response. This too is an evidence of God's mercy at work, verses 15 to 23, and it's mercy that sustains. Mercy that sustains. David's response has two parts, and both are rooted in the merciful character of God. First of all, David pleads with the Lord. Notice verse 16. As soon as the child falls, David goes immediately to prayer. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. Clearly then, this is not casual prayer, but fervent, intense, heartbreaking prayer. I'm not sure I've ever prayed like this in my life. But the language brings us into the emotion. David is desperate for his child. David's servants don't understand what he's doing. The child is alive, yet David looks like he is mourning. Why is David doing this, they wonder. They're they're confused. Well, David tells us why he's doing this. Verse 22, by this point, the child has already passed. But notice what compelled David to pray. While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me. That the child may live. Friends, that's faith rooted in the merciful character of God. David knows his God is gracious. He knows his God is merciful beyond measure. And David doesn't just know this intellectually. He knows it from experience because he's tasted God's mercy himself. And therefore, because of who God is, do you see here? Because of who God is, David prays. Because of God's mercy, David pleads for his child. This is why God's mercy is so sweet and so powerful in the life of the believer, because God's mercy leads us to trust Him, to depend on Him, to cast ourselves on Him when we have nowhere else to go. David pleads with the Lord because he knows his God. Along with prayer, David also worships the Lord. The servants try to keep the truth from David, but the king figures it out. He knows the child has died. So, what will he do? Notice verse 20. David went into the house of the Lord and he worshiped. Friends, please don't miss what this worship represents. This is not worship rooted in indifference or cold-hearted resignation. This is David walking by faith. You see, the only thing that is able to make sense of David's loss is the character of God. The only thing that can make sense to David is the character of God. That's why David heads straight for worship. Even before he eats, he needs to feed on God's character first before he feeds at the dinner table. Listen, David doesn't have any more answers to this situation than we do. He doesn't understand all the ways of God at this point. I don't understand all the ways of God at this point. But here's the key. Here's the key. Instead of giving in to despair, David holds on to what he knows to be true that God is good and gracious, that God always does what is right and wise, that all God's ways are faithfulness and mercy. Only worship can answer David's heartache. Only worship can make sense of his loss. This is not the rote worship of formality or indifference. This is the desperate worship of a man fighting for faith in the goodness and mercy of God. Brothers and sisters, there are seasons in this life that are so gut-wrenching as to defy explanation. There are moments of loss that seem to destroy all sense of meaning. The universe doesn't make sense at that moment. But in His mercy, God has not left us to face those seasons alone. He does not abandon us in those moments. And neither does He give us all the answers. He gives us something better than answers. He gives us Himself. He gives us Himself. He shows us His character, His mercy, His goodness, and His grace. And then He invites His people to hide themselves in Him. To make Him their refuge. And there in the refuge of a merciful God, we can pray with fervent desperation. And God won't cast us out. We can worship God for who He is, and we can find something solid for our faith when everything around us seems to be crumbling. God doesn't always give us all the answers, He gives us Himself, and that's better. That's what David is teaching us here. I, I can't explain God's reasoning for this. In the midst of this tragic con- consequence, though, David is not complaining or questioning or grumbling. In fact, He's teaching us. He's exhorting us to cast ourselves on the mercy of God. So I don't, know that, I don't know all that God has ordained for your life, friends, but I do know this. God's mercy, His character, is enough to sustain you. In fact, if all you can do in those seasons of loss is remember the character of God, then praise God. That's what faith looks like. Faith doesn't explain everything. Faith holds on to God in the midst of everything. That's number four, mercy that sustains. That brings us to the final way God is working in the chapter. And we'll conclude with this. In verses 24 to 25, we see mercy that prevails. Mercy that prevails. The chapter actually ends with David finishing off the Ammonites. You can see it there in verses 26 to 31. It forms a nice bookend with the beginning of chapter 11 where Israel was also fighting the Ammonites, but David didn't go. Now chapter 12 ends with Israel fighting the Ammonites and David does go. So it seems that David is back to carrying out his responsibility. That's where the action in chapter 12 concludes. Where I'd like for us to conclude though is with verses 24 and 25. David comforts his wife. Notice that she's now called his wife and not Uriah's wife. David comforts his wife, and in due time, Bathsheba conceives and gives birth to a son. But this is not just any son. This is Solomon, whom we know will be the heir to David's throne and the one who will even build the temple. So already, we know this son is significant. But then notice how else this son is described. Verse 24, and the Lord loved him. Why? Because God is gracious. The Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Again, the chapter began with God sending Nathan with a message. Now God sends Nathan again with a message. The first message was confrontation. The second message is covenant love. Covenant love. In His grace, God loves this child. And through this child, not another one, through this child, God will keep His promise to David. Do you see it? God made a covenant with David, but David has just fallen in grievous sin. What will become of the covenant now? Will it be broken? No, it will not. God takes David's sinful decision and in His mercy, God turns it and He uses it as the means of carrying out His promise. It's through this Son, through Solomon, that the Messiah will come. It's actually incredible to think. A relationship that began in sin will one day bring forth the Son who will crush sin forever. This is how God works. He takes what we intend for evil and He uses it for good. And He uses it to carry out His purpose. A relationship that began in sin will one day bring forth the Son who will crush sin forever. You see, mercy prevails. Mercy prevails. Grace triumphs over sin. We sang it earlier. Grace that is greater than all our sin. But do we really believe it? These verses challenge us to believe it. Mercy prevails. Why does David keep the throne? Not because he deserves it, but because God is merciful and gracious. Now make the connection with you and me. Why will you and I see the heavenly city with the Son of David seated on His throne? Not because we deserve it, but because God mercifully prevails over our sin in His grace. No one likes being caught in sin, do they? We prefer to hide. But praise God, the Lord will not let His children run forever. He pursues us. He convicts us. He pardons us. He sustains us. And He prevails for us. This is David's God and our God, brothers and sisters. A God slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Amen. Let's pray.